A friend of mine just uh, a few minutes ago asked me if if I would take it personally if she fell asleep during the Dharma talk. And I said, only if you start snoring. And it made me think of this story that um, Andrea told me about Gil Fransdahl was once practicing uh, with a teacher. I think it may have been a a Zen monk who um, his teacher actually fell asleep while giving a Dharma talk. Andrea said that Gil Gil said that he aspired to be that relaxed. (laughs) So anyway, um, yeah, I won't take it personally. (laughs) These things do happen, I know very well. (laughs) Mm. Just uh, before I came over this evening, uh, I went to uh, a meadow area near where I'm staying and and just had a look around and I noticed the moon uh, through the trees just rising. Couldn't see anything but the glow, the dappled glow coming through the trees. And I was informed uh, earlier today that it is a full moon tonight and it's also a particularly special full moon. There's uh, the orbit of the moon around the earth is not perfect. It's a little bit elliptical and sometimes at the full moon time, it's a little closer. They sometimes call this a super moon. It can be up to about 14% larger and brighter. So tonight it is a super full moon. It's the harvest moon here in the Northern Hemisphere. So it's the one that's closest to the, the equinox, the autumn equinox. And also this evening, there'll be a, f- a total lunar eclipse a little later on. And it looks like it's clear enough that we might get a view of that. And um, something starts a little after 9 p.m. But the the part where it becomes eclipsed starts at 10.11. And the totality of it is at 10.47 when it's completely eclipsed. And the light on it is reflected earth light it often turns a very uh, incredible sort of reddish color then. And full moon times in Buddhist countries, they use a lunar calendar. A lot of things are oriented around the phases of the moon. Today would be the full moon Uposata day, uh, observance day. This word Uposata means observance day. It's a special day in especially in some of the in the monasteries in this tradition at least the Theravada tradition and and there's a um, kind of a tradition in some cases where people will um, you know do a little extra practice sometimes they'll practice till midnight or sometimes all night <laughs> can be interesting what you notice in your mind when i say something like that <laughs> that i would have the nerve to suggest the possibility that you might put in a little extra practice or God forbid, sit all night. You know, easy for him to say, he's not gonna stay up all night. I know he won't do it. <laughs> I just barely make it to this talk. <laughs> I'm not sitting up all night. <laughs> but it's a possibility. Or maybe to 
Maybe the lure of this eclipse might get you to push that edge. It's interesting to see. You know, what, where do we, what's an edge that we might look at or work at in terms of this? And you know, what's the worst that could happen is you'd be tired tomorrow. That's not the end of the world. There's always naps catching up. So there's no expectation here. You might think, well, okay. He didn't say we should sit up, but he wants us to stay up all night. (laughs) No one's going to check. No one will know. Maybe if you're yawning a lot in the morning, we might wonder, but you might yawn anyway. But it's a possibility. So a full eclipse of the super moon tonight. And you know, some of us live in places, I I live in a place where it's very dark a lot. It's uh, 7,000 feet is the elevation where I live and um, and the air's clear, it's thin, relatively thin and clear. And a lot of why I chose to live there is because it gets dark and I can see stars and things, which I love to look at. Some of us live in places where we we hardly even, it hardly gets dark enough to even see the full moon if we bother to find it behind some building or something. So it might be a chance to to see something you wouldn't normally see because of the circumstances of where you live and your life there. A bit earlier in this retreat, uh, one of my colleagues, I think it was Kamala, uh, spoke a bit about the seeing the our path or seeing our practice in terms of the development or ripening of the paramis, these beautiful, uh, noble kinds of qualities that um, it's it's said that the Buddha uh, perfected these, cultivated and perfected them over countless lifetimes, and there are uh, some stories called Jataka tales of the Buddha to be the Bodhisattva. And often in those stories, uh, the Buddha takes birth as a, often as an animal and is uh, developing a particular one of these qualities. And most of you are probably quite familiar with them, but I'm going to read the, the list of the 10 just to refresh them in our minds. Or uh, maybe none of you, maybe some of you never heard all, all 10 of them listed. So uh, the first one is dana, generosity or giving. Sila, ethical conduct, virtue, nekama, renunciation, panya, wisdom or insight, virya, effort or energy, kanti, patience, satcha, truthfulness, aditana is resolve or determination, metta, friendliness or loving kindness, and upeka, equanimity. And so in this, if we look at the, the spiritual life in terms of these, then we could say that the culmination of the path or the, the awakened in the awakened heart or mind, then these are brought to full development. They're fully perfected. And um, you could say when the mind is no longer uh, under the sway of the energies of greed, hatred, and delusion, in all their manifestations, when they're no longer running the show, then these uh, paramis are the natural response there to that kind of mind. 
when it's free of these habitual patterns of reactivity. And I think it's always useful to hold uh, the path in this way, to reflect on in this way, because it expands the breadth of what we think of as practice in a way that I think is really important. Because we can get very, very focused on, on the meditation practice and on trying to concentrate the mind or uh, develop um, some you know, special kind of refined state through the meditation or to do it right. And we can overlook some of these other qualities that, that are being cultivated just because we're willing to keep at it and show up. It cuts through our tendency to be continually assessing and judging the practice and looking for evidence of progress or mentally comparing ourselves with our projections about others. And, you know, is it working? Am I getting it? Am I doing it right? Everyone else is getting it clearly. What if they get it all? whatever it might be. (laughs) You know, and we judge our experience, we judge ourselves for having that experience, we take it all personally, and we overlook these qualities that are being developed because we're willing to show up and make the effort we do. And you know, what if this whole retreat is just about developing resolve or energy, perseverance or patience? What, what if the whole, this whole lifetime is about developing that? Are you, you okay with that? Is that all right? You know, if the Buddha spent countless lifetimes, well, maybe we could spend a retreat working on one of them. You know, when we come to a retreat like this and, you know, we're, we're hoping to find some calm or ease or peace, And then we sit down and, you know, we've got this uncomfortable body that they issued us at the door when we showed up and it won't do what we want. It behaves in unpredictable ways and we have this wild, uncontrollable mind and it won't, really won't do what we want. (laughs) It's all over the place and it's full of resistance and pettiness and everything we've ever repressed or denied or done our best to forget shows up, isn't it? I mean, and, and it's not just, sometimes it's difficult, but it's just, maybe it's just boring or embarrassing. You know, every song, every stupid TV jingle, everything, every TV show, Leave it to Beaver's in there somewhere. <laughs> and it shows up, and you know, it's, so, you know, people have suggested this or said this idea before, but is there anyone in here who would willingly volunteer to have the contents of their mind broadcast over the PA here in the hall? <laughs> I'm looking for hands here. <laughs> okay, we have one or two who would do it. <laughs> Brave souls. But most of us would, wouldn't want, you know, it's like, if I did mine, you would have nothing to do with me, probably. <laughs> I'm not sure what you'd feel about it. Every once in a while, it's not too bad. But sooner or later, everything comes up, doesn't it? Some of it's really hard to be with. You know, and we, there's so much that's unacceptable in our experience at times. And, 
you know, we've put it away somewhere, not going to look at it. But everything's going to come up sooner or later. This is a quotation. Uh, there was a story about the very famous Tibetan teacher, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And uh, he, this was an evening where he had come, uh, he was supposed to come and give a, a talk of some a public talk in a large uh, auditorium. And I guess he was famous for showing up late to things like this. And so he was late. A lot of people had had paid a lot of money to come and, and hear him. And uh, when he finally he showed up, he, he started his talk. He said, uh, if you want your money back, it's all right. Just go to the door and ask for it back. It's quite fine. In fact, if you haven't started the spiritual path, it's best not to begin. It's difficult, it's terrible, and you have to face all kinds of things that you won't like. As far as the ego is concerned, it is just one insult after another. And sometimes it kind of feels like that (laughs) if we take it all personally. Someone, I think it was the writer, uh, author John Barth said, self-knowledge is almost always bad news. (laughs) You know, if if we get caught up in the contents of what's going on in there. But we have to develop a relationship with the entirety of our being, with everything, sooner or later. Because if we skip over anything, repress something, deny that it's there, it's going to show up and, and the path is never going to come to fulfillment. It will never be complete if we don't open to the totality of our being. And in order to do this, it's not easy, as we may have noticed all the time. We need these heart qualities of these paramis that supports that process. We need patience. We need the courage of Uh, virya, which is often called a kind of courageous effort. We need real resolve. We need patience, kindness. This is what's going to help us navigate the process with some sense of of balance and uh, some steadfastness. Because we'll get caught. Till we're fully enlightened, there'll be times when we are lost in confusion. It's a big project we're undertaking here. And if it was easy, we'd all be fully fully enlightened. You know, you've put in a lot of time. It's not just that you're a bunch of slackers. And we're unlearning habits that we've really gotten really good at, practicing for a long time, maybe for lifetimes. Unlearning these habits, the only way that's possible is if we stick with this. That's what's going to make the difference. Because we can create a situation where we're always in contention with what's going on and we're never okay as we are. And so it's, I think it's good to reflect on, on ways that we can hold times that are difficult in the practice when it is challenging and see them as opportunities to actually develop these paramis, these qualities to build a certain sense of resolve, of determination, of patience. And they can really foster a sense of inner strength in us if we are careful in the way we hold them. In the long run, we see that rage against the way it is, against our experience, struggling, it just doesn't work. It's not practical. It's not ultimately useful. But if we can see the things that are difficult for us as opportunities to develop these qualities, 
to develop the tolerance, patience, steadfastness, resolve. Someone told me a story recently. Um, one of their teachers is a very well-known uh, teacher, uh, monk, and he was on retreat and he was, when he did his, um, some of his walking practice, he was circumnambulating a, a shrine, a stupa, a pagoda, and it had a Buddha rupa on one side. And every time he came around to the, the altar side, he would uh, offer his mind state. He would lay his, place his mind state on the altar, offer it to the Buddha and bow to it, bow with respect to that. And I, such a lovely image, this idea of, of offering that and offering it with this sense of, of respect for that. Maybe it was a, a difficult complaining mind state or a beautiful, joyful mind state, whatever it was, offering that to the Buddha and bowing with respect. Life often gives us opportunities to cultivate these paramis that we, we might wish we weren't getting. You know, we often learn about, about them in times when it's difficult. We learn about patience by noticing when we're impatient. We learn about equanimity, balance of mind by seeing what gets us off balance. So much of the time, that's how we learn about these things. I, when I was taking care of my parents before they died with my sister and I were very involved in looking after them. And boy, I, that was a good developing patience there. My mother's mental uh, abilities had declined quite a lot. And we'd have the same conversations over and over endlessly. And, and there were many times when I was not as patient as I wish I was and said things that were, um, that caused hurt. And I had to um, you know, work with that. It was an invaluable opportunity, but not easy. And if we tell ourselves, oh, just be patient at a time like that, tolerate it, it can lead us to kind of, you know, getting tight and, you know, making it through somehow. But if we hold it in a way that, okay, let me open to and understand this impatience, see this as, as a way that I can learn about this, see how it feels, what are the stories in the mind? How is it in the body? Get to understand that. What happens when we identify with it and when we don't? Our deeply um, conditioned mental patterns or habits of mind provide us with great opportunities for developing patience. You know, we see the same pattern over and over and we get, we can get, um, tired of it sometimes, you know, we feel like we've seen it from every angle and it still seems to arise at times and, and we get caught again. It's like, I can't believe it's catching me again. And one of my colleagues calls these, uh, these old deep kinds of patterns like this karmic knots. They hook us. Joseph Goldstein, who often teaches this retreat, uh, be teaching the second, uh, six weeks this year, he has this image. He said, it's like bait on a hook that we see and we know what it is and we watch ourselves going, I'm going to bite. I'm going to do it. I had an experience on a recent retreat. 
a few years ago where just this thing came up, you know, it was like, oh, not again. <laughs> Seeing this, this way of getting hooked by an old mental habit. And, and at some point, I, I've had a little bit of wisdom where I was, I said, you know, Greg, this is not the last time you're going to feel this way. This is probably not the last time you're going to feel like this. And it was not a, it was not a defeated or resigned uh, quality to that. It was actually the response of kindness and wisdom. No, it probably isn't. But it let me hold it in a very, very different way than I was. The struggle fell out of the situation in that. And this quality of patience gives us a chance to see these kinds of uh, old habits, these patterns as not just obstacles that are getting in our way, in the pa- obstacles to the pathway to freedom, but actually as vehicles for freedom. Because we can learn a different way of relating, like I described in that response that came out of, in my heart at that time. And find freedom right in the middle of something that feels like just a problem, a limitation. And so we cultivate qualities like patience in this way, and we also learn a lot about forgiveness, which is really an essential aspect of, of what happens sometimes. And you know, the Buddha pointed to the force of, of clinging, grasping in the mind and the heart as the source of so much of, of what we suffer, of how we suffer. And this shows up in all kinds of ways. And one of the ways that it manifests is in terms of our relationship to past hurts, painful memories that come. It's a common experience on retreat. I know some of you have seen this. I certainly have. There are times when we're flooded by memories from our life. May, May even be memories we don't remember that were in there. Events we didn't even realize happen sometimes. It can be quite quite disturbing sometimes. But um, this, sometimes it's almost like a life review, these memories that come. And sometimes they're difficult. I remember early retreat sitting here at IMS and these memories of, of um, ways when I was a little boy and I was so cruel to uh, insects then. Little boys are pretty awful sometimes and did horrible things. It wasn't just that, I was also kind to them sometimes. I was the one who the teacher would get to take a bug outside because I wasn't afraid of them, but I did horrible things to them. And, and these feelings, these memories, and, and these strong feelings of remorse about these actions. And I was very young at that time. And I have an interesting relationship with insects. I'm, I'm generally kind of their favorite food, the ones who bite. and. Um, <laughs> Nor generally people who go walking with me are safe from biting insects if I'm along. And I'm one of the only people I know who's been bitten numerous times by ladybugs who are <laughs> generally seen as quite benign. <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> but sometimes we have these memories and they're really hard to be with. And uh, they may be painful things that we've done or things that happened to us. And, and sometimes these memories will trigger associations that are very powerful in the moment and it can feel as though it just happened. 
even though the actual situation, the event may have been a long time ago, um, it can trigger strong reactions and bring, bring it all up uh, just as if it, it was fresh and new. And it can become so hot and uh, painful in the mind and the heart. One time I was practicing, uh, when we do the, the metta practice, we go through these different categories, as you know, and I had been doing a, a long intensive metta retreat. And um, at one point my teacher said, well, you should go through the different categories because I'd been staying just in one with the easy being. And so I was going through them and I came to a difficult relationship. And uh, someone came to mind and and it was amazing to me how strong the feelings, that was a time and a situation where I felt misjudged and um, and really treated badly when I was didn't deserve it. And uh, was my my perspective on this situation. And it was so painful and I felt so, that hurt just was right there. And this had happened years and years ago and someone who I never saw, <laughs> it was striking to me how how this can happen. And we've, I think all of us have seen different versions of this kind of thing. And this quality of forgiveness, this possibility of forgiveness is I think a really um, powerful and uh, maybe vitally uh, important thing in our, in our path, in our practice and vital to our happiness. It points to this possibility that we might um, really shift our relationship to past hurts to resentments and grudges that we might be holding on to, this way that we're clinging to something that happened in the past. We hold on to them in a way that just keeps us bound in a cycle of suffering that may get triggered at times. And, and so by practicing, by uh, opening to, exploring this quality, this possibility of forgiveness, it gives us a chance um, to um, start to unhook from something that may be bound in that way. And um, it points to the fact that there, that we have a choice because sometimes we feel like we don't have any choice there, but we actually do have a choice. We can continue to hold on to these things or we can actually learn ways to let them go. We can practice forgiveness and let go of the burden of hauling these things around with us. We can learn a way to not keep feeding resentment or anger. A critical first step in, in even approaching the subject or the possibility of forgiveness is uh, to actually acknowledge the truth of suffering. I mean, this is where the whole path starts here, acknowledging that, that there is suffering in our lives in the world for all of us. These pain, sorrow, struggle exist at times for all beings. It's not the whole picture, but it's a part of life. There's joy and sorrow and there's difficult times and suffering. And it's not a mistake or our fault that this is true. It's just a reflection of the truth of things. And part of doing this means that we also acknowledge that sometimes we cause the suffering Sometimes others cause it, sometimes both, and sometimes it just seems to happen. And it's not necessarily fair, it's not about that. So 
sometimes a, a suffering uh, relationship to past memories or past injuries, memory of a past injury or a hurt, is um, there's a way I think sometimes that it uh, gets um, related to some instinctual kinds of responses to take care of oneself, self-care, self-protection. You know, sometimes these memories get stored in a different way where there's a lot of, of kind of alarms that get easily triggered, especially if it's something that is really painful. And, uh, you know, we see this in very extreme cases of this in things like post-traumatic stress reactions where something um, easily triggers this, this trauma response where the... Uh, it gets very, very extreme at times. And I think it's because these memories, uh, it's part of the system's uh, attempt to protect from uh, possible future harms or hurts. So it gets, it gets bound up in ways. But it can leave us uh, in a, caught in a cycle there, holding on to it with no, uh, no release happening, no letting it go. But forgiveness points to a possibility that we might actually allow the past to become the past and learn a way to live in the present with some balance and wisdom and some sense of, of strength, or might, we might say kind of personally, uh, personal empowerment. So there's a few things I wanna to touch on that I think are really uh, important to consider. The timing, with forgiveness is very, very important. We have to really be ready and there are times when it's not the right time. There has to be enough stability in the mind and heart and enough sense of actual safety. You might be too close to a, a situation and it's not reasonable or, or wise to ask um, ourselves to undertake this. We have to take care of ourselves and find safety and find balance of mind and uh, that's where we need to put our energy. And it's not, doesn't make sense to try to work on forgiveness. It's too soon, it's not the right time. We can't do it because it's not easy and sometimes it's scary. So we have to be in a strong place to undertake that. One of my uh, colleagues gave a talk on this subject uh, last year or two during a time when I was sitting over next door at the forest refuge and doing a retreat. and. And she, um, this is my uh, colleague, Winnie Nazarko, she said something like this, and this, this addressing this idea that we have to, has to be the right time and we may have to go very gradually towards the possibility. She said, it might begin, this process might begin by entertaining the possibility that you might at some point maybe consider the idea of forgiving. <laughs> There's a lot of quality qualifications in there. But sometimes it has to be that, it has to be at that level. Okay, I'll, maybe someday I'll entertain the possibility of this. That might be as close as we can get. When I was thinking about this subject, I was reminded of this story um, that I'd like to share with you this evening. It's, it's speak to the potential a transformation that can happen through uh, through uh, this quality or this um, through forgiveness. 
Um, some of you probably have heard this story. It, it was quite well known um, some years ago. It's a story of something that happened in uh, the city of Minneapolis, which is, for those of you who don't know, in the central part of this country. And uh, a woman named Mary Johnson had a son named uh, Loramian, and he was uh, killed during uh, some kind of altercation that had to do with a gang situation there in the city. And there was an investigation into the shooting and what had happened. And um, at a certain point during this, a 16-year-old boy named O'Shea Israel confessed to this crime, to having done this shooting, this killing. And there was a long, drawn-out investigation, hearings, appeals, uh, that went over two years, and so by then he was old enough that he was tried, went to trial as an adult. He was convicted of uh, second-degree murder and given a 25-year prison sentence at that time, at, le at 18 years of age. And uh, this woman, Mary Johnson, went to the trial, and I think she, I believe she, she said to him at that time that she had forgiven him. But she also said... Um, in her mind, she said, I wanted him locked up and put in a cage because I felt he was an animal and that's what I thought he deserved. And she said that she worked on, uh, on trying to find some way to forgive him for the next 10 years. And she was a very religious uh, woman. She went uh, to church. She worked through prayer, through uh, support from people in her spiritual tradition in her church. And she said over this 10 years <laughs> that she felt like there was some change and transformation had begun to happen. And, and in um, 2005, so 10 years after he was sentenced to uh, prison, she decided she wanted to find out if something, if the forgiveness that she thought she was finding in her heart had actually occurred, if it was real. And she um, decided to try to visit this now a uh, grown man. And she uh, made requests uh, repeatedly over nine months until he decided he was willing to meet with her. And um, she said, we had a conversation and he admitted what he had done. And, and meanwhile, he had gone through his own process uh, growing up in jail. <laughs> and, uh, you know, really really had taken uh, some responsibility for this action that he'd done. She said, we had a conversation and he admitted what he'd done. And I said, look, I told you back there in court that I forgave you. But today, from the bottom of my heart, from my heart I want you to know that I do forgive you. And um, this guy, O'Shea Israel, the young man, he said it was very powerful and moving. And I, I felt at one point... Um, compelled to ask her if I could give, may I give you a hug? He asked if he could give her a hug to show her that he was, that he was genuine, that he really had uh, taken responsibility for what he'd done. And, and she had this kind of, at that time, she had this uh, very intense cathartic experience. She said, I remember falling and he had to hold me up. He had to hold me up until I felt this thing leave me. And I instantly knew that all that hatred and bitterness and the animosity and all that junk I'd had inside me for 12 years, I knew it was over with. It was done. It was gone in that instant. And they began meeting regularly. 
she would go see him regularly and they developed a relationship that was very much like a mother and her son. And uh, he got uh, released, I guess maybe on parole in 2012. So he'd served then um, most of 20 years. And uh, she introduced him to the landlord in the building where she lived and he moved in and became her neighbor. And she said, I, I treat you as I would treat my son. My natural son is no longer here. I didn't see him graduate. Now you're gonna go to college. Maybe I'll have the opportunity to see you graduate. I didn't see my son getting married. Maybe one day I'll be able to experience that with you. And at one point she was interviewed and she said this. She said, unforgiveness is like a cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son. The forgiveness is for me. There's something really important in this because it's really about taking care of ourselves. That's what this is really about. It's an internal process where we, we see that we actually are ultimately responsible for our own well-being, our own salvation, you could say. And when we hold on to resentments and grudges and the past hurts in an unskillful way, we're letting the past dictate who we are in the present. And there's a great loss of personal uh, strength when we do this, personal power when we do this. And we lose sight of the fact that ultimately how we feel, it's up to us. It's not completely due to outer conditions. It's, it's up to us. And it also points to, the story points to a few other things that I think are really important. Forgiveness does not remove what we could call the the karmic weight of an action. It doesn't free someone else from their responsibility. You know, she said, it's not about that. He did this thing. That's real. So we all, we all have to take responsibility for things we've done. You know, O'Shea Israel, this man, he said, I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning, I'm trying to learn how to forgive myself. And I'm still growing towards that. So he's got his own process to do. There's there's something really critical in, in approaching the subject of forgiveness. It never means that we condone unskillful actions. Some actions are and always will be unforgivable. In my mind, there's a, it's something very important is to make a distinction between an, an action which may not be forgivable and a suffering being who we might begin to uh, forgive. We might begin to uh, find a way to forgive. It never means denial or repression or forgetting the past, forgetting what happens. It's not about that. It's about developing a wise relationship. And it doesn't necessarily mean mending a broken relationship. I mean, this story, this is a, this is a pretty impressive and incredible story. 
and maybe something that's beyond what we could conceive of. And sometimes we have to set very clear boundaries. For example, when I was talking about this time of uh, practicing metta for this difficult person, and I came to some real shift in my in, in the, the anger and hurt that was there, that did shift for me. But it was clear to me that I wasn't gonna have anything to do with this person. There's clear boundary that was there. It doesn't necessarily mean that we, that that relationship is, is mended. It may, it may not. But the weight of that resentment is gone. That's not there. Sometimes it's really helpful. This was helpful for me in this process of, of letting go of the resentment in this situation of, that I used as an example in my own life. Sometimes it's really good to really, I had to look, where is the suffering in this? Because sometimes we'll hold on to suffering as though somehow we're punishing this other person. I'll show you, I won't forgive you. And they're just fine. It never crosses their mind. We're the ones who are suffering there. Sometimes that's a critical thing to look at. And we have to be careful if we're asking to be forgiven for something we've done that we don't put the weight of that burden on someone else. They may not be able to do that. And what we need to do is take responsibility for what we've done and, and we may and make amends if we can. Apologize if that's possible or appropriate. Sometimes we can't do that. Sometimes we can't reach out and we have to do it in an internal process. And if we're working on forgiving ourselves, we have to make a, a real distinction between the qualities of guilt and what we might call a kind of wise remorse. Because guilt is, um, Guilt doesn't go anywhere. Guilt keeps us locked in this cycle of suffering. It keeps us bound. But a kind of wise remorse that is a, a deep acknowledgement of something we may have done, of a harm that we may have caused, a real taking responsibility for that, for our actions. And with this determination, let me be more careful. <laughs> Let me not do that again. Let me cultivate uh, wisdom and kindness rather than reactivity. And a, a doorway for me that I think is, is very powerful and maybe essential in this is, um, is the doorway of compassion. You know, if we remember that all actions, ev- anything that we or anyone else ever does that that's genesis is in the mind. There are no actions that do not begin in the mind. The Buddha said this very famously in the Dhammapada, mind is the forerunner of all things. If one acts with an impure mind, sorrow and suffering follow one, like as surely as the wheel of the cart follows the foot of the ox that's pulling it. If one acts with a pure mind or heart, Happiness follows as surely and as closely as one's uh, shadow. And we all know what it's like to act from a place of, of confusion and pain in the mind. We know what it's like to act, to act when, when 
craving, wanting, desires, got the upper hand or aversion. We've seen this. This is not something that's outside of our experience. We know what it's like to act from um, these places and, and the actions that follow from those are not so good. And they may not have been extreme examples, but we've seen this. We know what it's like when pain and confusion are, are in the forefront of the mind and the actions that follow on from that. And for some people, the amount of confusion and pain in the mind, in the heart, is beyond anything we can even imagine. The conditioning that they have, the life that they've had to live through, we can't even get we can't imagine what it's like for some beings. And the actions that come from that are very extreme sometimes. But underneath that is a, is a confused, suffering being who's trying to be happy. They just may not have any idea what would lead to happiness. They've never been given the chance to find that out. So, we're, so this doorway of compassion be, to me, because we know what it's like in our own mind and heart when we act, when these energies are what's in charge, we can understand what it's like for someone else. And so we don't forgive an unforgivable action, but we might be able to forgive a suffering being who did that action. That's, that's a doorway in to make that separation. This is a quotation from uh, Martin Luther King Jr. We must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. One who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. So this, this shared humanity and the doorway of compassion, I think, is a critical uh, avenue to look at when we're considering the possibility of forgiveness. There's a uh, quotation, it's attributed to um, the actress Lily Tomlin, said, forgiveness means giving up all hope of a better past. So there's a humor there, but there's also something very, very uh, poignantly true. You know, we can't change the past. We do have to give up all hope of a better one, but we can find a wise way of uh, relating to the past and and release the burden of uh, just hauling it around with us in a way that just keeps us uh, locked in cycle of suffering. And the Buddha spoke to this uh, in, in some more lines from the Dhammapada. He abused me, he beat me, he defeated and robbed me. In those who dwell on such thoughts, hatred will never cease. He abused me, he beat me, he defeated me, he robbed me. In those who do not dwell on such thoughts, hatred will cease. And he followed this by these very famous words, hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone does hatred cease. This is the eternal law. So it's important to keep in mind if, we're in, if we find ourselves in a situation or at a time when, when this is something that may uh, be, be relevant for us. 
may come up here on retreat or at other times, to uh, remember that it's a process and just because we've decided it's something we want to do or a good idea doesn't mean it's going to just happen because of a decision or um, or that it's going to happen quickly. You know, it's in the story I told, it was a 10-year process for this woman <laughs> working on this forgiveness. And maybe a, a critical thing is to is to really look, think of it as a process of planting seeds by forming these this intention, having this aspiration and intention to to possibly forgive, planting that seed in the mind. That's that's where we start. That's what we can do. And how and when that seed may uh, sprout is. is happen in its own way, in its own time. But the, the power of an intention, a, the seed of an intention, that potential power is huge in the same way that the power of a seed, you know, this time of year walking, there are these acorns everywhere in the woods. And, and one of those acorns can make a, a huge oak tree with lots of fruit and seeds of its own. And, and we've seen times where a seed will fall in a crack in a huge boulder and it can crack that boulder <laughs> when it sprouts. So, so too, the, the potential power of an intention in the mind and the heart is really uh, immense. Hmm. So uh, I'll, uh, I'll stop here and have just a few quiet moments together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.